In the 27th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, we have the account of the crucifixion of our Lord. And there is a cry from the cross that really um, epitomizes the suffering that He endured. When I read this verse, it's verse 46, I have a feeling that most of you can uh, mouth the words with me. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Seminole, Texas um, is not your most scenic spot in the southwest. It's a little oil-filled town out in the middle of nowhere, shinry brush and scrub oaks and sand dunes. And I had a friend come there one time to preach a revival for me. He took one look at Seminole, Texas and said, this is the most God-forsaken place I have ever seen. Endeared him to the Chamber of Commerce in Seminole. It really wasn't God-forsaken. As a matter of fact, some of the most godly people I've ever known live there. You know, it's one thing, I think, to, um, to see something that looks God-forsaken. It's another thing to feel God-forsaken. And God-forsakenness is not a location, it's a personal condition. God-forsakenness is not where you live. It's how you feel. And a person can live, I think, in a place that looks God-forsaken and be all right. I was happy there. But how do you make it through life if you feel God-forsaken? And I'm convinced that most of us can endure just about anything in life as long as we know that God is with us. But what if we feel that He isn't? I heard the story of a little boy whose father sent him on an errand down to the barn. It was late and dark, and he was afraid. But he didn't want to admit that. So he's kind of kept hanging around the house, hoping his father would soon go down there and do what was to be done. After a while, his father, in impatience, said, Son, have you carried out my orders? Have you done your chores? And so he had to confess. He said, Dad, would you go with me? It's just too dark out there for a boy without his father. I tell you, you can walk into any dark as long as you know the Father's with you. But what if you someday feel He isn't? Some of you know how that feels, don't you? And some of you have been or are in pits of despair and you feel so alone and forsaken of God. And you know why the psalmist cried, Why do you hide yourself from me in times of trouble? How long must I bear my trouble and my sorrow? Some of you know how that feels, don't you? Jesus did. And so He hung on the cross for six hours. And now for three hours it has been midnight, dark at noon. Well might the darkness hide and shut its glories in when Christ 
The mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. And it's dark now, total dark. And it's silent. When he was born, angels sang. Where is their music now? When he was tempted in the wilderness, they came and ministered to him. Where is their comfort now? When he was in Gethsemane, they came to wipe drops of, sweat drops of blood from his brow. Where is their touch now? And so in the darkness and the pain and the absence of life's music comes this cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever wondered why that was left in the original language? I don't recall any other time, maybe a couple of places, where the original language is left. Have you ever wondered why that was left in the native tongue? Well, because the translator, translator wants us to catch the pathos, the intensity of those words. There's something deeply moving about the cry of a man in his own native tongue. I heard a preacher tell that he was standing by one day when an immigrant, uh, a foreigner, was, was standing in the presence of, of, of a tragic death of his child. And he said while he was standing there, all of a sudden he cried out to God in his native tongue. And he said, it sounded so... He said, I was moved all the way to my toes. And so out of the darkness comes the intensity of this man's cry. My God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever wondered? Have you ever? Does that bother you that Jesus felt that way? Can you imagine how difficult it was for him to feel God forsaken? He'd never come to a moment in his life when he'd ever felt broken fellowship. He never did anything that stood between him and the Father. He said, I do only that which pleases him. And so in that darkness, in the absence of life's music, his heart must have cried, where is my Father now? Why doesn't my Father do something? It's too dark for a child here without his Father. You ever wondered why? He suffered abandoned of God. Well, because he wanted to identify with us in any suffering. From the moment of his inception to the moment of his ascension, Jesus perfectly identified with us in every way. You ever been tempted to sin? He was tempted in every way as we have been tempted. You ever been lonely? I tell you, in, the, in all the history of mankind, there has never been anybody who has been more lonely are more forsaken than Jesus. Max Lucardo has a marvelous little book about the death of Jesus. And in this book he introduces us to a lonely woman by the name of Judith Bucknell. Judith Bucknell was homicide number 106 in Miami in the year 1980. And the police blotter read like this. Judith Bucknell, can somebody help her just... Push, darling. There you go. That's the way. Judith Bucknell was age, eight, age 38, weight 109 pounds, stabbed seven times, strangled. And if she hadn't left a diary, probably her memory would have been buried with her body. 
And the correspondence about Judith Bucknell from the newspaper says that she, by her diary, left a character. The character was herself, weary and struggling and wistful. And she left a voice, and that voice was her, was hers, the moan and the song and the sigh of loneliness. Said the newspaper account, age 38, she missed, she missed connections in life. There were many lovers, much love offered, none returned. And there were all kinds of uh, entries into her diary like this. Where are the men with the flowers and the champagne and the music? Where are the men who call and ask for a genuine and actual date? Where are the men who would like to share more than my bed, my booze, my food? I would like to have in my life once before I pass through this life the kind of sexual relationship which is a part of a loving relationship. She never did. And when she died with a stab wound on a steamy June the 9th, her body died, but her heart had died a long time before. And she wrote, I feel so old, so unloved, unwanted, abandoned, used up. I want to sleep. I want to cry forever. Can you hear the cries of the Judith Bucknells of the world? You can hear them in the sighs and the shuffling in the convalescent homes. You can hear them in the moans of guilt and the cries for mercy in the prisons. And you can hear those cries as you walk the manicured streets of suburban America and in the hallways of our high schools where peer pressure separates the haves from the haves not, have-nots. I tell you, this world is full of Judith Bucknell's lonely people. You ever felt lonely? Have you ever felt used and abused and cut off? Then look at him. For on that cross he suffered what is suffered on every battlefield, in every hospital bed, in every deathbed, and he suffered that immeasurable pain of loneliness. Why? Because he wanted to identify with us in every suffering. And I suppose that's the worst. There is a fellowship between those who have a common suffering. And you can say, I've been there. And so if you've ever been on a cancer ward and know what that feels like, so does he. And if you've ever lost a mate and, knows, and know the pain of that, so has he. And if you've ever experienced absolute isolation and loneliness and the feeling of God abandonment. So has he. And the black community could sing in the Civil War, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. You can't say that, for he has. He has. I grew up in West Texas, eight miles from town, the big city of Monday. Now, when you live eight miles from Monday, you're in nowhere land, I'm telling you. And, and between my house and, and Monday, Texas, there were eight miles of dirt road. All the action now, get this, all the action is taking place in Monday. And I'm out here eight miles away, separated. Now, for an inexperienced driver, 
I mean, eight miles of dirt road is bad enough, but two miles of tight land is just impossible almost. But I mean, when you got a girlfriend in town and you out here lonely, <laughs> no, nothing, nothing's going to separate. Nothing's going to stop you. I can't tell you what joy, what ecstasy, what happiness to turn that corner and hit up that two miles of tight land and see there'd been somebody already there ahead of me. No, no joy like that. And, and, and made some ruts, you know, you know. And so here I am making my way and I turn up that road and I can see it in my mind right now, travel it hundreds of times, and there'd be somebody ahead of me making tracks. I can't tell you what joy there is in life to turn the road and see that he's been there ahead of us. And that's what the author of the book of Hebrews means when he says, look unto Jesus, for he is the author. That means pioneer of our faith. It means that he gives us faith because he's been there ahead of us. I cannot tell you the ecstasy, the joy, the freedom, the excitement, the gladness to discover that when you come to the darkness and see that He's been there ahead of you. And He knows. He understands. Not only does He share our suffering so that He might identify, He suffers for us in order that He might save. Now I don't think those people around the cross understood the seriousness of their sin. I mean, to the Jew, all it, was, all it mattered was you know, I mean, if you sin against God, all you got to do is take a sacrifice to the altar. I don't think they understood the serious nature of sin, not then. And so Jesus prayed and still does, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They didn't understand the serious nature of their sin then, and we don't understand it now. How serious is sin? Let me tell you a little about it. Sin is high treason against the government of God. Sin is rebellion against the sovereignty of an eternal king. Sin is violation of the law of a holy God. Sin is a disease that can only be cured by application of His blood. Sin is a wound that only His stripes can heal. I don't think we understand how serious it is to sin. Sometimes I, when I'm out visiting, I'll talk to a person about giving his life to Christ and they'll say something like this, Oh, I know we need to get started in church. Not long ago I was talking to a guy and I was pressing the claims of Christ to his life and he came back with this answer. He said, Oh, I know one of these days I'm going to get started in church. I wanted to say to him so badly, I had to bite my lip to keep from saying to him, you think that's going to help? Do you think that your sin is so insignificant and so small and so uh, minute that all you've got to do to absolve your sin is just to get started at church? You think that's going to help you, man? Let me tell you something. Sin is much more severe than what can be handled or cured or dealt with by getting started to church. It cost him his blood. It's like saying, oh, I, 
It's like a rapist saying, I know I raped her, but I made everything right. I sent her flowers. It's like a murderer saying, sure, I killed him, but at least I paid for his funeral. It's like a man saying, I've got cancer, but I'm going to start taking my vitamins. You know what you say when you say that? You say, well, that was a nice thing you did for us there, Lord, but it really wasn't necessary. I'm going to make everything right. I'm going to start the church. You're not going to make it right with that. The only thing that can accomplish redemption for man is death, either his death or yours. For the violation of sin carries with it the mandatory death penalty, either yours or his. He either suffers the payment for sin for you or you suffer it for yourself. That's how serious it is. It's so serious that he whose glory was set above the highest heavens came to the backside of hell for you. Now I know some people piously refer to the fact that man is in quest of God. Let me tell you something. The biblical view of man is not man in quest for God. The biblical view of man is man in flight from God, willing to go anywhere, do anything to get away from God. The biblical, biblical perspective of the good news of the gospel is not the sheep seeking the shepherd, but the perspective of the Bible is the relentless quest of God for man. And how far has he come? And how far is he willing to go? He's willing to go to the backside of hell for you. And you say, do you really mean, do you really think that Jesus suffered hell? Well, hell is a place where God is not, isn't it? And when you hear that cry, my God, why have you forsaken me? Involved in that cry is God abandoning himself. God turning his back on himself. God rejecting himself, God turning his back on the sinless. He went to hell in order that you might not go there. Not only did he suffer that so that he could identify with us and save us, but finally so that he could show us the way through suffering. Now watch this carefully. The picture we get of this lonely man in the darkness is the picture of a man who is willing to trust in the darkest night and believe that everything's going to come out all right. For after, in, in all of the suffering, he never lost faith. And through all of this feeling of God abandonment, he never lost confidence in God. And so finally he cried, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he opens up for us a window. He pulls back the curtains and he helps us to see that even though it's dark now, there is light somewhere. And even though there is night now, there is morning soon. And even though man feels abandoned of God, he must keep on trusting, he must keep on believing because God is somewhere offering His hands. And He shows us 
that you must not and shall not and cannot give up in the hour of darkness and the hour of suffering. He shows us that there is a way through suffering to victory. As a matter of fact, not only does He show us that there is a way through suffering to victory, He actually shares every victory with us, even the last one. And that's what Paul cries when he cries in 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. He gives it to us. He not only shows us victory, He shares with us victory. So that every victory He accomplished, He makes available to us. Isn't that amazing? Now, if you're a basketball junkie, uh, this is the best time of the year for you. I mean, this is your paradise for the next two weeks for me. And I've got these little round balls right in the middle of my eyes watching so much basketball. I plan to be there every time there's a game watching it. I love it. And there's not a, in this NCAA tournament, there's not a team there that's undefeated. Did you notice that? Not a one of them. Every one of them's been defeated. Arizona, I think, has been defeated twice. Number one team in the nation. And they got six games to play, and if they win six in a row, and they win the championship game two weeks from tomorrow night, they're, they're the champions. Because if you win them all, you, you're number one. You win. It doesn't matter how many defeats that you've had up to now. If you win that last one, it takes care of all the defeats. Doesn't matter how many, it doesn't matter how many times you've lost, my friend. It doesn't matter how many times you've been defeated. He'll share with you the last victory, and that takes care of all of them. And the last victory was his victory over death. I heard about a, a group of people that got together, a hockey match between. They had this school there of, of special ed students, retarded students, and they, 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 they taught them how to play hockey. And they got a game with another town and another special ed group, and they were playing this hockey match. And one team was ahead two to one in this hockey match, and the time was running out. And the team that was behind by one uh, uh, goal skated around and, and right just as the buzzer went off, they made a puck and tied the game. Now, nobody likes a tie, do they? Well, one of the, one of the hockey players of the, of the, of the, on the team that had just been tied skated around the rink. Now, this is a little special ed guy. Skated around the rink with his hands in the sky in a form of a V, and he shouted, We both won. We both won. It's a matter of perspective. And so if you stand here with me this morning on this side of the cross, when He came out of the grave victorious, we both won. Because He shares that victory with me. It's not only a, it's not only a presented victory. It's a permanent one. It's a permanent one. Now everybody likes to triumph. 
When I triumph, I'm somebody. I'm significant. I'm worth. I'm of worth. But triumphs are so fleeting. There's never been a champion. There's never been a champion who has been a champion forever except one. And the triumph and the championship and the victory He offers to us is a victory forever because He's triumphed for good. You know what that means? You know what death means on the basis of that for the child of God? It means not the final end. It means the consummation of every victory. You get that? It's a permanent victory so that death for the children of God is is the culmination of all the victories. It's the coronation of all the triumphs. So I could stand, I could stand a year ago, a little over it, beside the grave of my mother and whispered to her lifeless body, Mother, you won. You won. They have triumphed who have died. They have passed the portals wide, leaving, leading from the house of night to the splendid lawns of light. They've gone down that far road leading to their new abode, and from curtain casements we watch their going wistfully. They have won, for they have read the bright secrets of the dead, and they gain their deep unknown, hearing life's strange undertone. And the race across the days, they are victors. There's the praise and the glory and the pride. They have won, having died. Because when he hung there, and when he arose there, he gained a forever victory for us. And what does that mean to me? It means what the songwriter said when he said, But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. It's all that I can do. I may be speaking to someone this morning who has never placed his life, his faith, in Jesus Christ. Can you walk away from this? Can you let him hang there in darkness for you and walk away? from that. Wouldn't you like this morning to come and place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, eternal life? Wouldn't you like to do that? Maybe there's some who need to come this morning as in the early service to place their life in this church. On this rock He's built His church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He is forever victorious. And there may be some this morning who, who would say, you know, His love constrains me. He's done that for me. 
And I've lived like I want to live. I've disappointed him. I've not been what I ought to be. Does his love call you there to new commitment, to rededication of life? After we've had a moment of prayer, we'll invite you to come. Would you join me in prayer? Father, Lord, Jesus said, and if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. I pray that having been lifted up, He might draw all of us, all of us to Himself. I pray for every lost person, every uncommitted Christian, that this will be the moment of their decision for Christ. Call them, Father, today. Call us. And we will, we will answer, we'll respond, we'll obey. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, I pray. Now in the spirit of prayer, as we stand together, we invite you to come. On the first word, you come this morning. Would you come?